Hey everybody, it is Bumi Akinisotu, host of What in the World, right here on WERALP in Arlington, Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode is about my second home country, Nigeria. I've been waiting for this episode to come. I'm really excited to bring to you some information that'll hopefully make you sound really smart around your friends and colleagues and family members. And that is about the the Nigerian presidential elections that took place uh, not too long ago. By the time you're listening to this, the elections would have ended and President Buhari, the sitting president, would have been elected. So if you want to learn the background, if you want to learn who's who, if you want to know just a little bit more about Nigeria and why it's so important to the continent, why it's so important to the United States. But before we begin, take a second just to enjoy a little bit of this here, uh, Fela Kuti playing in the background and try not to dance a little bit too much before we start talking about politics. Isn't it great? Yeah. Stay tuned, grab your tea, grab your coffee, and get ready to learn. tuned into WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM streaming and on demand on WERA.FM. I am your host, Fumi Akinisotu, and this is What in the World. Um, it's that time where, again, we get together to get a better understanding of what's happening in the world and why it matters particularly for those of us here living in the United States. Thank you for spending this time with me uh, and getting caught up on all of the global news. Uh, If you listened to the last episode, you know that I've been focused on Africa and African issues. Uh, We discussed the impact of the Chinese presence in Africa as it relates to the media and all of the concerns around media freedom. So the timing is perfect. Uh, It is Black History Month here in the United States where we celebrate and acknowledge African-American achievements and also African heritage. But not only that, uh, there are lots of other timely events happening on the continent that you may have heard about. And the one that's the hot topic of the weekend is hashtag uh, Nigeria Decides 2019, uh, thereby known as the Nigerian elections. February 15th uh, was to mark the presidential election day for some 84 million Nigerians to cast their vote uh, in eager anticipation of a new chapter for the country. But then about five hours before the polls were to open, uh, the elections were postponed. And so our guest uh, for this episode, Chris Ogumodede, Chris is going to talk about what happened, where things stand, what's to happen in the future, and why any of this is not only important to Nigeria, but to to the United States and and the West more broadly speaking. So just a little bit about Chris. Uh, Chris is an international affairs analyst, writer, editor, and political risk analyst. Uh, He covers democracy, global security, uh, international development, and government and governance. Uh, his, His primary focus is on West Africa, the European Union, and the United States. And um, he currently works as a political and economic advisor at the Embassy of Belgium in Nigeria, and he focuses on politics, counterterrorism and security, um, humanitarian assistance, migration policy, all the hot topics that are, that are related to foreign policy. Uh, and I love your your little uh, uh, last sentence here. It says he enjoys good travel, writing, talking about 1990s hip hop, and discovering fresh juice recipes. 
So, <laughs> Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining What in the World and for explaining what's happening in Nigeria. It's an exciting time, as I mentioned. Uh, what we do at the beginning of every show so that the listeners get a chance to understand who they're talking to or who they're listening to um, is we get to know you. And I want to start with um, a little bit about your bio um, that I saw on Twitter, which I think is fantastic. It says that uh, you are a third culture kid. And some people may not know what that is. So explain what a third culture kid is and why that applies to you. So essentially, a third culture kid, TCK, as adults, are people who are raised in cultures that are different to their parents or the culture of the country on their passport or where they identify with, you know, that means they've lived in another different country or different countries, as the case may be, in my case, for a lot of their developmental years. So that's just essentially what that is, that a bunch of people who have a different culture from the ones they were raised or born and, and that of their parents. So that's just what TCK means. And so where were you born? So I was born in London. Um, my parents were Nigerian migrants to London. They moved to London in the late 70s and slash early 80s. My mom moved first and my dad. And then we've lived all over the world. We've lived in Nigeria. We've lived in the United States, um, Italy, and a bunch of other countries. And that's where the TCK thing came from. You know, um, growing up, I always had this... Uh, weird complex that a lot of TCKs have with their identity. You know, you know, you get the question, who are you? Like, <laughs> yeah. well, I get that to, till this day, you know, people look at my passport and they can hear my voice and they're, they look at my name and it's like, dude, who are you? Like, so that's fundamentally a thing that I grew up with and I learned to embrace that. And I think at this moment, it's been, you know, in hindsight, it's been a good thing for me. It's been great as far as my, um, personal and professional development and it's also helped me to you know be grounded in who I am and it's just it's a part of who I am it's not you know I don't see it as a challenge like I used to I've come to embrace mm -hmm. that and I'm kind of I'm grateful for the fact that you know I was raised as a TCK. Yeah I totally uh, can appreciate that as someone who is a first generation um, American my parents also left Nigeria my dad left first he left in the in the late 70s and my mom followed and then had me here and uh, while I've only lived in the United States I've certainly been the target of many questions <laughs> about who are you or or where are you from from like where are you from from <laughs> and I, I agree that when you are growing up it's definitely initially like a like a, a sore spot but then as you get older it becomes more like a like a secret weapon in a way because you can you can relate to different people in different places and you're kind of like a chameleon you can kind of like float in and out of different mm -hmm. spaces and translate different things to different groups of people in terms of your interest in politics do you attribute sort of being this third culture kid to your interest in politics or where does that actually where, do, where does that come from well without question it's from uh my biography you know growing up um international affairs and foreign policy have always been a stable, a staple rather of my life. You know, um, not just the fact that we moved around a lot and we also had a lot of diplomats as family friends and relatives and, you know, people I got to be friend, uh, be friends with. And also 
television, you know, I grew up to be somewhat, you know, precocious as well. My dad would always ask us to like watch CNN and watch you know, Jim Lehrer and all of this or read the Times and Washington Post and all this stuff. So I got to absorb a lot of international politics growing up. And, um, you know, I remember watching Mandela's release, Desert Storm, the dissolution of the, the Iron Curtain, Oslo and all of this stuff. So this was all, you know, a... Um, complex of uh, exposure to international politics. But if I had to crystallize the, you know, a much more personalized experience, I would say it was actually um, the elevation of a man called Emeka Anyoku. He was the deputy secretary general for political affairs at the UN, who also became the secretary general of the Commonwealth. He's a Nigerian diplomat, and that obviously struck a chord, mm -hmm. as well as the election of Kofi Annan to mm -hmm. be the secretary general in 1996. Like, I remember when I saw that, I was a kid, but I remember when that happened, that was a big deal, not just for me, but for my relatives who I mentioned were diplomats and my parents, for all of us. Like, that told me that I could be, you know, the UN Secretary General. I could be the head of the Commonwealth. I could be Secretary of State. I could be anything that I wanted because I saw people, Africans, mm -hmm. Nigerians, who could be elected to things that, or appointed to things that I could be appointed to. So that gave me that sense of, you know, you could do it too. You've got role models. One of the other cool things about your Twitter um, bio that I, I think is cool is that uh, you say you're a code switcher. And uh, oh, a, lot, yeah. oh, a, lot of, a lot of people may not know. Again, I think it's a magic uh, gift. It's a, it's a superpower um, to be able to- It is. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your code switching ways. The idea is to move between cultural worlds uh, and linguistic worlds to get a sense of familiarity, but comfort. You know, often those who don't understand it think it's, you know, confusing or, you know, you, you are pretending or you, you're fake or it's not that at all. It's just trying to sometimes tailor your audience or sometimes get your personal level of comfort. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, it's your, it's, you are the same person. It's not, nothing has changed. Your ideas are the same. You know, your beliefs are the same. The words are the same, but you articulate them with different lingo. That's yeah. just what that is. So, you know, I do that a lot. You know, I remember growing up, um, I could, so I speak with my parents in um, Yoruba because mm -hmm. that's our language. That's um, their um, native tongue. Of course, we speak English as well. Sometimes yeah. we speak mix of Yoruba and English. And with my Nigerian friends, I might do the same thing or I speak Pigeon English, yeah, yeah. Nigerian Pigeon English. So I think this is a great way to segue into a part of the show that's uh, about learning something different, learning something new. Um, I added in a quiz. Mm -hmm to the to the mm -hmm. uh, to the show i promise it's not going to be painful it's, it's i like quizzes <laughs> I, I, good good i think i think uh i think you'll enjoy these uh for our listeners the quiz is just a way for you to learn a little bit more about the topic and maybe something um that's intriguing or or related to what's happening uh in the world so chris mm -hmm. the yeah. first question is which african-american civil rights leader tragically passed away in Lagos, Nigeria in 1971 while he was on a trip to strengthen ties between Africans 
and African Americans? Was it Amiri Baraka? And don't Google because I know I can't see you. So <laughs> don't Google. <laughs> okay. Amiri, Amiri Baraka, Whitney M. Young, Nina Simone, or Ella Baker? So I do know that Ella Baker and Nina Simone did not die in Lagos. I'm going to go with Nina Young. All right. Great job. <laughs> Good work. You got it. You got it. So Whitney M. Young was the executive director of the National Urban League, um, which is a well-known civil rights organization yes. in the United States. Yes. And uh, he was known to be a great negotiator between Lyndon B. Johnson and more prominent civil rights leaders such as Dr. King. And unfortunately, while he was uh, visiting Nigeria for a conference, uh, the, the the word is that he was he got a heart attack or had a heart attack um, while he was swimming and tragically passed away. And I I, I didn't want to pick this one because it was kind of sad, but I also really respect Whitney M. Young, so uh, it was my way to shout him out. So great work on question number one. Since you're a music fan, I chose my second question uh, to relate to 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 music. Uh, hopefully, my facts and my research um, was correct because I kind of questioned the answer, but we'll see. So which artist is credited as being the first Nigerian musician to be nominated for a Grammy? So which Nigerian musician was credited to be, was it Femi Kuti? Was it the mm -hmm. King Sunny Ade? Was it mm -hmm. Shade Adu, better known as Shade? Or Sikuru mm -hmm. Adekbochu? Um, can you give me the options again? Sure. So Femi Kuti, yeah. King Sunny Ade, mm -hmm. Shade Adu <laughs> and uh, Sikiru Adekboju. This is the artist credited with being the, the first Nigerian first musician to be nominated, nominated for Grammy. Nominated. Not one. Mm -hmm. um, King Sonny Ade? Yes. Oh, okay. That was a guess. <laughs> I honestly didn't know that. Correct, correct. Um, so he was, uh, the King was nominated in 1983 for his album. Synchro system. Uh, ah, synchro system. Yes. Every Nigerian parent who is at least 50 <laughs> has heard that song. They've got that album. They constantly play it every Christmas, every birthday. Every that party. Yes. <laughs> synchro system. Yeah. Thank you for trooping through our quiz. We're here to talk about the elections. And Nigeria is one of those countries, again, I think a lot of people who are listening to the show know Nigeria, but probably know it in terms of the scams and the 419s and all the yeah, negative yeah. things. Right. Exactly. But but I find I take great pride in my home country and in the journey that uh, it has, you know, gone through in terms of becoming a more democratic nation. So um, Nigeria, one being, uh, first being one of the many post-colonial nations um, has come a long way um, from the days of the Civil War, uh, which nearly tore the country apart. There have been military coups and violations of the Constitution by presidents and so on and so, so on. And uh, Fela Kuti, who was mentioned in our quiz, he famously chronicles the Nigerian experience uh, in his song, Suffering and Smiling, uh, referring to the ways that corrupt political and religious leaders have taken money abroad to enjoy life while everyday Nigerians suffer uh, and struggle in Nigeria. So Chris, 
just for people who may not be very familiar with Nigerian democratic history, can you just talk through um, some milestones that have helped Nigeria transition to a more democratic nation? Okay, sure. So I will start with um, October 1st, 1960, because that's when Nigeria got its independence from Great Britain. And then it went for a period of three years when it became a republic. Um, this was October 1st, 1963. So I should point out that immediately after independence, there was a parliamentary democracy, Westminster style parliament, where there was a prime minister and a ceremonial governor general. And then 1963 got rid of the governor general and created a ceremonial president. And that experience lasted up until 1966, um, January of 1966, where that, uh, the first military coup happened. Um, that truncated the first um, republic. And then I would say the next important date would be July 29th, 1966. This is when the counter coup to the first coup of January 66 happened. And in a sense, that was the trigger for the events that led to the civil war. Um, or the start of the Civil War, a year after, in 1967. Um, and the Civil War lasted for three years, roughly. It mm -hmm. ended in 1970. After the war ended, there was a, you know, this is a, you know, tenuous point, but there was an attempt at a reconciliation to rebuild the country, to bring it together and try to forge a, you know, a potential transition to a democracy which would be long-lasting and which did happen um, much later in 1979. There was a transition to um, a second uh, attempt at a Republican government, which did happen. There were multi-party elections, which were, you know, difficult. They were flawed, but they happened and they were considered to be somewhat representative of, you know, the public's um, desires. And mm -hmm. that, you know, that was also the beginning of the mass migration of Nigerians, uh, middle-class Nigerians um, to the West in large numbers to Great Britain, to the United States, to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately, as much as the democratic transition happened, there was also a lot of corruption. You know, the 1970s, to put it in the context of the world, was, you know, when a lot of energy crises happened. You know, mm -hmm. you had the oil shocks from 74, 75, you know, because of the Yom Kippur, Kippur War. Then you had the energy crisis in the United States. Mm -hmm. the, um, Nigeria made a lot of money. They made yeah. a lot of money from being a oil-producing country, a member of OPEC, but unfortunately, the oil rents were squandered. And that led to a lot of disaffection um, in the country, the middle class, you know, up and left. And, you know, the political system essentially broke down and that led to a military coup in December of 1983. Since December of 1983, it was essentially a um, system of military rule. You know, this is when um, now President Buhari 
-hmm. Then General Buhari became the military head of state and he got overthrown himself in September of 1985. The thing about the military era is there were, there were always, you know, moments where there's mass disaffection and mass disapproval amongst mm -hmm. the public. And mm -hmm. that's been, you know, the pretext for the um, rival powers in the military to conduct a coup. And then when it succeeds, they constantly promise, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do right. that, we'll fix this. And, and right. that's how Buhari got swept out of power by General Babangida. And yep. he was there, he was the military head of state for a period of eight years. And eventually, he created um, a two-party system in 1993, where the first truly democratic elections were held. And as much as they were considered to be free and fair and transparent and you know credible and legitimate, because of some ramblings in the military, that was truncated and that caused a lot of uproar and you know. It, you know, General Babangida was forced out of the military and he had to step aside and he put an interim government, which got overthrown in less than three months by a person you might have heard of called General Sani Abacha, mm -hmm. who was head of state for four and a half years um, until, of course, he passed away in some controversial circumstances. <laughs> and that was the... Um, you know, I'm just being diplomatic. Of course, of course. <laughs> that, was the, of course. that was the beginning of the end of military rule, fundamentally, because mm -hmm. when Abacha passed away, General Babangida, um, excuse me, General Abu Bakar, who was the successor to General Abacha, took over and he created a multi-party election system, which is what the country still runs today. And mm -hmm. that was the beginning of the Fourth Republic. The elections were held, the presidential elections were held in February of 1999. And um, then General Obasanjo won the elections and he became president of Obasanjo as a civilian. And he took the oath of office in May 1999. And ever since then, it's been 20 years of democracy. So that's been the chronology of Nigerian um, democracy. It's it's not been a straight line. It's been starts and stops. It's been mm -hmm. false starts. It's been, you know, unforced errors, whatever you can call it. But that has been, you know, the chronology. This is almost, I guess, almost 60 years. And that's basically it. Thank you for, for framing it so neatly that way, because um, like you said, it is, it's not linear. And one of the aspects about this that makes it very complicated is uh, Nigeria's sort of regional and religious and ethnic and tribal identities, right? And and mm -hmm. we woven through all of these um, coups and the transition, uh, as you mentioned, from uh, military state to sort of multi-party system, sort of the what's happened under underneath all of that is that you have uh, tensions between ethnic groups and regions of Nigeria who are oil rich and those who are Muslim and those who are not. Can you just talk a little bit about some of those complexities and or at least just lay, for, lay out for us the dynamic in Nigeria amongst the major tribal groups or religious groups and geographic areas and why there's tension between those those entities. Nigeria's democratic experience, like I mentioned, this is the fourth republic, is fraught with difficulties along ethnic, religious, regional, and demographic lines. And that's because 
um, of course, this is complex, but if, if I had to simplify, that's because a lot of the politics are, you know, patronage driven in terms of the electoral politics with oil as a major source of um, rent sought after by principals and the agents. So um, it is a, it's a system run by a mono economy, which is oil. And, you know, there's always the, there's talk about, you know, resource curse and all of this stuff, you know, in Nigeria, you can see a lot of that, you know, where there is where politics inevitably is a contest for resources. Because when you think of where a lot of the um, oil wells, for example, are situated in the southern part of the country, where, frankly, they have been beset by environmental degradation, uh, they've not reap the benefits of the massive oil wealth. There's a lot of militancy. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of violence. There's been a lot of deprivation. These are, you know, some of the um, causes of anxiety of, you know, there's a lot of talk about resource control. That's what that stems from. The fact that a lot of the local communities feel like they should be in control of their resources. And also the fact that it's a multi- um, ethnic um, country with um, a, you know, you always hear about the Muslim North and the Christian South. It's not wrong, but it's not, it's a lot more complicated. You know, there are Christian, large Christian minorities up North. Conversely, there are parts of the South, the mm -hmm. Southwest, especially where there are more Muslims in some communities than there are Christians. So it's not, you know, you've got all of this webs of, you know, complexity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of religion, you know, ethnic uh, groupings and language. So it's not, you know, if I had to sum up why politics are so complicated, it's the fact that this is a country with an institutional arrangement from the British colonial legacy of a top-down system in a country that's fundamentally decentralized. You know, you've mm -hmm. got millions and millions of people from who speak what 250 languages or more 250 or more ethnic groups like it's you can't run the country as a top-down hierarchical system but that is what the institutional especially politically mm -hmm. that is what the institutional um, rules of the game are so yeah and i one of the on our last episode we talked with george uh, sarpong who works for the ghanaian uh, media commission and he was here uh, talking about basically the the influence of the chinese government on african media and it was it was quite fascinating and one of the things he said was in a in a nutshell uh you know if nigeria goes so does africa if Nigeria falls, so goes the rest of Africa, which is profound. And I don't know that people quite understand the economic weight of Nigeria when it mm -hmm. comes to uh, comparing it to other African countries. Can you just talk a little bit about why Nigeria is so important to the African continent? Um, first of all, Nigeria is Africa's largest democracy with a population of over 180 million people. So the um, 
democratic process and the economic situation is of a major concern, not just to Nigerians, but to its regional um, neighbors in ECOWAS, the economic community with African states, but also the continent, but the on also the rest of the world. You know, this is the largest country in its region. It's a regional power. It's the largest economy in Africa by GDP with, with a GDP of roughly $400 billion, um, which makes it an economic powerhouse, not just, you know, in the region, but in Africa. It's a frontier economy. You know, I, read, I recently read a um, study on uh, the Brookings website, which mm -hmm. talked about the growing um, the consumer market in Africa and Nigeria is in the top three. It's also a very young country, you know, a good 60 to 70% of the population is reported to be under 35. So mm. you can appreciate why Nigeria means a lot to the world. It's got also a leading capital market system. Um, it's a top investment destination on the continent. It's also got a vibrant um, diaspora. You know, mm -hmm. when you think of Nigerians in the diaspora, you think of Nigerians in the United Kingdom, in the United States, in Canada, in the United Arab Emirates, you know, all over the world. You think of Nollywood, Afrobeat, the most popular young entertainers are guys like Wizkid and Davido. All of this is what makes Nigeria so, you know, important in the, on the continent, at least. And it's that, this is what makes it attractive. At that. So and Nigerian all wedding. of this... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Especially <laughs> Yoruba weddings. Our wedding. <laughs> oh, yes. Nigerians love a good wedding. We love like, a good you have party. Not been to a wedding until you go to a, an Oambe, as we call it. Uh, uh, yes. In, in a, yes. An Oambe basically just means a party. It literally means Oambe, which is, yeah. it is there. It is there. It's, just, it's yes. happening. It is the Gotta thing. go check it yes. out. I, I do feel like with the advent of migration, as you mentioned earlier in your in your fantastic sort of summary about Nigeria, I do think the advent of migration has fueled some of the popularity around Nigerian culture and uh, Nigerian mm -hmm. history and uh, just Nigerian customs. And and I used to joke that. Well, I don't joke. I still I still say it that back in the day when we were growing up and we would wear uh, you know our Ankara and. Mm -hmm. I would get picked on. Um, I oh get, yeah! Oh, I, I get, remember. Yeah, I remember. Get, like, get made fun of. <laughs> you get called African booty scratcher. You know. Scratcher, like, <laughs> kite, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you get you get picked on, and you are ashamed to like wear your fabric. Now, That's oh great. my. God, everybody. Like everybody wants to be Nigerian. Everybody wants to be Nigerian. Everybody wants to wear the Ankara. Everybody wants to figure out the where they gele. come from. The gele. They want everybody wants to wear, you know, wear their, their head ties and everything. So so um, I think migration and the expansion of Nigerian culture um, overseas uh, has definitely fueled some of the popularity. And I think as George mentioned in our last episode is part of the reason why when when people look at the powerhouses of Africa, Nigeria is named as one of them. And so it's important that we keep these critical institutions like democracy um, afloat. And so I, you mentioned a couple of things that I think is a great segue to understanding just the basics of what's happening with the election. And, and that is sort of the electoral structure, the system Mm -hmm. of elections in Nigeria, and also um, the, the movement and the parties that have shaped um, various outcomes. And so for people who don't know, could you talk about, let's start with the structure of, of 
Nigeria's election. So we have the presidential elections that just occurred and that happens every four years. Okay, every four years we have the presidential election. We have all of the states uh, within Nigeria, I'm assuming similar to the United States where you have polling stations, you go to the polling station and you pick, you know, whoever it is that you want to pick. Is there a governing body for election elections in Nigeria? That th- there is. INEC, which is the Independent National Electoral Commission. Okay. And how many parties are there within the sort of presidential election season? How many parties are there? Right now, it's the answer is kind of unclear. At the beginning of the election cycle, there were almost 77 presidential candidates um, who opted to go on the ballot. There were 91 political parties, electoral cycle. Um, Eventually, that whittled down to roughly 73, like I mentioned. And in the last couple of days before the the voting started, a bunch of candidates dropped out and endorsed one of of the, the major candidates. So frankly, it's hard to tell. You know how many candidates are running? <laughs> this is not unusual in the Fourth Republic of Nigerian politics. You know, since '99, there's typically been an avalanche of candidates who choose to run. You know, for different reasons: some for vanity, some for protests, some for um, I guess sectional interests. But by and large, it's been a two-horse race since 1999. Um, led by the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, which ruled um, from 1999 to 2015. And since that time, there's been the rise of the All Progressives Congress, which which was a amalgam of a bunch of opposition parties across the country who felt that their best odds were to come together and challenge the PDP, which they did successfully. And now you've got a two-horse race, like I mentioned, between the PDP, the People's Democratic Party, and the All Progressives Congress, the APC. Okay. And so great, great summary here. So two parties, the People's Democratic Party, and then the All Progressive Congress. Mm -hmm. So you have these two parties. What are their platforms like what are their what's the difference between the two yeah now this is a very um interesting question now often especially in nigeria you often hear oh there's no difference between the pdp and the apc they're all the same they crisscross you know the one guy is in pdp today and tomorrow he's in apc and he's back on tuesday now it is true on the surface that there's a lot of crisscrossing. This does not, you know, it's not like the United States where, you know, a guy could be a Democrat because his dad was a Democrat, his granddad was a Democrat, his great grand. It's not like that at all for obvious reasons. Historically, you know, Nigeria is what, 58 years old. The parties have yet to develop in that sense, you know, institutionally and ideologically, but there is a difference, I think. Um, The PDP is a much more center-right party, at least on core issues of economics, you know, it's a much more pro-free market, pro-liberalization, pro-deregulation, pro um, a weaker currency to help imports and exports, whereas the APC is a much more center-left party. It's more um, welfareist. It's much more social democratic. It's much more of a let's... um, 
protect the safety nets, let's protect the poor, let's protect the um, disadvantaged and the more economically vulnerable. So there's also a regional bent to their politics. You know, the PDP is a much more of a broad catch-all party. And it's, I think the fact that its symbol is an umbrella is quite telling because that tells you <laughs> what they're all about. The, the PDP was created to be a, uh, a coalition of ethnic, of all ethnic groups in Nigeria, or at least all dominant ethnic groups with representation across the region. The APC is, in theory, it is also the same, but it's much stronger in the southwestern part of the country, as well as the northern part of the country, the northwest and the northeast. So that's good. That's really actually I didn't know some of those. I didn't know some of those differences. So that that helps a lot when it comes to who's running. Who are the top mm-hmm. two contenders that sort of have the the face off? Of course, President Buhari, as the incumbent who's seeking re-election, is the candidate for the APC. And the PDP candidate is the former vice president called um, Atiku Abubakar. He was mm-hmm. the vice president under President Obasanjo um, between 1999 and 2007. Now, for um, Niger- for American um, listeners who might have heard that name, that's because he's been tied to a bunch of controversies um, involving allegations of corruption and, you know, things of that nature. And most recently, he um, visited the United States where he met with members of Congress, um, you know, civil society and... uh, All right, so we have Atiku and we have Buhari. February 16th, there was supposed to be a decision. And uh, a few hours before the polls were to open, the INEC, the Independent National Election Commission, as you mentioned, postponed the vote and that's right uh, <laughs> at 2 a.m in the morning <laughs> yeah and uh a lot of i woke up to twitter and i saw all the tweets and i was like oh goodness what happened and so tell us what happened chris well the it, it was a bit of a surprise to be honest because INEC had repeatedly told Nigerians and international observers that they were prepared to bring the the elections the schedule and a lot of people went to bed assured that they'd wake up and go to the um, voting booth and get their votes on and go back home. A lot of people gathered around their candidates' resident residences and just ready to start the you know party and celebrate and blah blah blah. And then all of a sudden, no, it's not happening. So the um, chairman of INEC says the postponement happened because of a review of logistical and operational plans, which showed that, you know, the, uh, the elections were not going to be feasible, to use his words, even though as recently as of the 11th of February, which is what, five days before the cancellation or postponement, he said they were, that they were ready. Um, he said that, you know, bad weather had caused the delays and the commission had not been able to deliver the um, the election materials to all of the distribution centers and the polling units across the country. And, you know, it's, that's a very interesting um, point to make because there are parts of the country that weren't really affected by weather related impediments, you know, in the South, especially yet a lot of their materials were not delivered. There were parts of the country where um, uh, polling materials were destroyed and burned and things like that. So, you know, it's it's really hard to get a sense of what happened beyond what the INEC tells us because 
unfortunately, um, it's been the communication has not been um, superb as far as um, what the INEC has decided and what the public got to hear. So it's caused a lot of conspiracy mongering and rumors mm. and unsubstantiated accusations. But that's interesting. I can't imagine that happening here in the United States. But uh, <laughs> oh, it'd be a freak out. My it'd goodness. Be, it'd be a I remember um, 2012 when people waited in line in Florida. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, was yeah, like yeah. a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or there's yeah. certain things we just don't tolerate. Mm. I saw an advertisement on the INEC Twitter page uh, that said, don't sell your vote, uh, don't sell your future. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I thought that was great one and uh it's <laughs> <laughs> like you should you should not uh sell your vote um but is this something that's common uh in nigeria where people's votes are basically being purchased um for you know one candidate or another unfortunately it is um so i should say that um Electoral malpractice has gotten much more difficult and less common. Um, So in order to get around that, a lot of the political class has just figured out why you don't need to stuff the ballot. You don't need to do that. Just buy their votes. So a lot of the party agents um, have just concluded that the best way to suppress the votes or to run up the score in, you know, if it's your um, stronghold is to buy votes. So, and, you know, you gotta understand Nigeria is a country with a poverty problem. Last year, um, the world poverty clock declared Nigeria to be the country with the largest number of people in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. Now this is um, ahead of India, which has a population of almost seven times the the Nigerian population, yet Nigeria has more people in extreme poverty. So Mm -hmm. elections, there's a political economy dimension to all of this. Like elections are a time to make money, to share money, and to weaponize poverty. So Mm -hmm. you have, um, and this is a thing on both sides. It's not, you know, just the PDP or the APC. Both parties are in the business of buying votes because why not? You know, what is the most attractive option to a person who makes less than $2 a day when you offer, hey, here's $20. Let me get yeah. your vote. Yeah. Come on. Often there's a lot of political disaffection. People will tell you, oh, I don't really, you know, I might vote for PDP, but do I think they're going to make my life better? No. Do I think APC is going to do anything for me? No. So the fact that they are disaffected and poor makes them susceptible to being, you know, cajoled into selling their votes. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, yesterday or the 23rd, um, the votes came in. So where are things now? Have they decided? Um, is there a leaning towards one challenger or another? So the votes obviously have been cast. Um, they have been collected, um, at least most of them. So there have been a series of postponements or cancellations in some um, polling units across the country because of, you know, incidents of violence and uh, tampering and, you know, other incidents of malpractice. So a lot of the results have yet to come in, but a lot, the majority have been cast, collected, and they are in the process of um, collating and announcing um, what the results are. But yet another couple hours of political suspense that, I, and I can tell you, like, from 
the perception just on Twitter, a lot of people are anxious. Like they can't, they can't wait for the results because a lot of people remember um, the last time, 2015, when the elections were held, Saturday and the results started to trickle in um, Sunday and Monday and the results um, were announced and they got a winner on Monday evening. And that was a very anxious, nervous, tense, um, you know, time for the country. So this, obviously, a lot of people were kind of expecting would happen again, but it does not douse the tension at all. Like people are so anxious. They want to know. So uh, you mentioned everybody's tense and waiting. Uh, many mm -hmm. people here in the West are eagerly observing and waiting. Why is this election in particular so important to the West? And in particular, if you can speak to the United States, like why do you think this, in, this election is so important for us to pay attention to? So obviously, um, Nigeria, for reasons that I mentioned, you know, its size, its um, diversity, its large diaspora presence, its um, long-standing relationship with the West and the United States in general, but the West writ large, um, you know, the fact that it's politically a very fractious democracy, you know, its democracy isn't perfect. It's always, there's always tensions between, you know, the executive and the legislature and, you know, the different political actors. You know, it's Nigeria's of utmost importance in not just um, the region, but the continent. And it's giving the relationship that it has with the West. You know, there's a lot of interest, you know, in a free, fair, legitimate um, election because that is what lends the sense of leadership as far as Nigeria is concerned on the continent. Like, a lot of other countries look to Nigeria for, you know, leadership on a lot of um, mutual issues. And if you know, Nigeria can be seen as being able to conduct an election credibly, um, transparently, that lends a lot of credibility to Nigeria that allows it to be a partner with the United States and Britain and the European Union and China and other countries in all kinds of um, foreign policy initiatives, because that says that this is a country that we can rely on to take that mantle of leadership on the continent. Now, of course, there's the very fact that what happens in Nigeria will affect it's certainly the region, you know, when Nigeria sneezes, the rest of the calm, the region catches a cold. That is true, you know. So the stability as far as um, Nigeria's politics and its economy is of the most uh, utmost importance to the United States. And, you know, of course, the United States has, you know, commitments in terms of its relationship, not just with um the political class, but civil society, um, the assistance with the military as far as the Boko Haram scourge. There's a lot of reasons for the West with large, specifically the United States, to take an interest. Of course, there is a Nigerian diaspora in the United States, which is, you know, more than a million people of Nigerian ancestry who live in the United States who are active. They send money to Nigeria. They follow politics. They visit Nigeria. You know, you know, in the interest of disclosure, that includes folks like myself, you know, who um, a lot of us, you know, live here. We you know, at, at least I live here at the moment, but, you know, I've got family in the United States. I've lived in the United States. I've got ties to the United States. I've got ties in Britain. So there is a lot um, that is happening in Nigeria that makes it of relevance and importance to the United States.
I would definitely second all of that. That's a, a fantastic summary. And, and same here, um, uh, there was a study about um, the remittances that have gone back to Nigeria. And I think something like $22 billion goes mm-hmm. back to Nigeria. Is it 20, 25, that three billion is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, billions of dollars go back and it's a significant part of the economy. Certainly my family and myself, um, we've all sent money back. And I would like to know that if I'm sending my money back to someplace that it's not like a, a hole in somebody's pocket where the money just goes out, but that money actually is able to survive and do something good for people. So they have like a, a an environment where they can invest or start a business or, mm-hmm. you know, do, do whatever. It's not like you're sending money back and people aren't able to do anything for themselves. So that's at least why I'm interested mm-hmm. in. And hopefully for our listeners, if you have um, heard about the elections, this gives you a little bit of a taste um, as to what's going on, mm-hmm. why it's important. Uh, you know, certainly if you have friends who have been, complaining now you can add to the conversation and say that because of this show uh you know what's uh happening in nigeria so chris thank you so much um it is our time to wrap up um as we do for every episode we try to make sure we have a song that keeps you in a good mood that will hopefully (laughs) yeah i try i love music you're a music fan um music generally speaking is is what keeps us in a good mood when things are are rough so what is your song what is your song chris that gives you hype when things are, are rough so my song is kendrick lamar all right and every you know when you look at when you listen to the lyrics the constant that's what gets me going like i look at the world around me there's a lot of cynicism there's a lot of stuff going on you know all over the world in africa and europe you know you've got brexit you've got migrants trying to go to europe you've got you know syria you've got yemen you've got a lot of stuff going on certainly right here there's a lot of stuff going on but then I'm constantly being reminded that it will be all right. Everything will be okay. Like, it's, going to, it's going to be bad before it's good, but it will be good. So when I hear those lyrics, like it gets me fired up. And you know, I had friends, for example, who were part of the Black Lives Matter, you know, with this song that's really all about you know, the whole protest movement and things like that. And you know, a lot of the things that we talked about was you know, the civil rights movement, for example. That, look, it was tough, it was bad, like, it was ugly. You know, people died, they got arrested, they got beaten. But in the end, things got better. Are they perfect now? No, they're not, but they got better. So we are going to be all right. The world will be all right. All right. Amen. We might have to debate that on another on another conversation. Please don't say Drake. Don't no, say Drake. God, never, never. <laughs> not even close. Not even close. I'm a J. Cole fan, but either way. All right, all right. Well, thank you so much for wrapping us up here. Uh, thank you all for listening. You can check out this episode uh, at WERA.FM. As I mentioned, you can find me on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, under WITW Pod. Certainly listen on SoundCloud, on iTunes, wherever you listen to uh, your podcasts. Again, hopefully you've learned something new and interesting about my home country, our home country, Chris and I's uh, home country, and uh, you can add to the conversation and, and sound nice and smart. So thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of What the World.
dog, pet dog, pet dog, my dog, that's all. Big back and chat, I trapped the back for y'all. I rap, I black on tracks, so rest assured. My rights, my wrongs, I write till I'm right with God. When you know, we been hurt, been down before. When our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? And we hate poor, poor, wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. I'm at the preacher's door, my knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be alright.